Welcome. My name is Laura Keane, Principal Consultant at Ask Europe, and we're back again for another edition of the podcast. Joining me today, uh, I have Cole Verma from Deep Insight. If you've listened to our recent podcasts, you will know that I've been talking to a range of different people to get different perspectives on the workplace. So I spoke to some representatives of Gen Z, talked to Danny Carr about women in leadership and I wanted to talk to Cole to get his perspective on inclusivity in an organisation. So welcome Cole, how are you? I'm very well, thank you very much Laura. Really excited to be on this podcast. Yes, I've been really looking forward to this um, because I think we've got so much uh, that we can learn from you. I'm going to ask you to start by introducing yourself, please. Yeah, uh, my name's Cole Verma. I'm the founder and director of Deep Insight. Deep Insight um, describes itself as a company that looks at disruptive thought just to get people into new habits of thinking. Our vision is really to support and develop change in organisations and enable people to be inspired, really engaged and to be their authentic self. Nice. Disruptive thought. Tell me about that. That that sounds kind of scary if you're sitting in an organisation. Yeah, we, do, we try and do a lot of things in organisations, especially when we talk about organisational change, cultural change or training people to get from one state to another. What we don't do is we don't actually get people to go through a series of thinking about themselves in a reflective way where they can start learning new thinking. Now, without new thinking, you don't have new behaviour. The the problem with organisations is they have policies, procedures, and a lot of things to tell you what to do and what not to do. Um, Mm -hmm. And they expect that to actually curtail culture. So my background was um, 30 years in policing before I started Deep Insight. And what I learned very early on was the 2AM test. The 2AM test is for any organisation to have a policy. Once you have that policy, when the bosses and everybody has gone home at 2AM, if there's somebody with no bosses, what do they do? They often revert to what they think is right. And it's not usually the policy. So I call it the 2AM test when we talk about cultural change or new ways of thinking. So you've really got to engage people and you've got to start with the why. If we don't have the why, we don't never get new behaviour. I love that. I love the thought of a 2 a.m. light bulb going off. Um, (laughs) So so that's interesting. You said, you know, 30 years in in the police and then you decided to to set up this organisation. What what prompted you to do that? What prompted me was really that we still have. Uh, inequality in the world and Mm -hmm. inequality is very dear to me. Um, I'm from an immigrant background, uh, came from India. We didn't come from a poor part of India. I came really from a middle class, well-to-do family. And all I remember Mm -hmm. about the change is in India, we had sun, colour. And when I came to the UK, it just seemed like we'd gone into black and white. And, you know, (laughs) You know, in policing, I joined policing because I was racially abused by a cop in Nottingham when I was very young. And I vowed, I didn't know then, but looking in hindsight, I really wanted to change things from the inside. So for me, 
Deep Insight really is about reform, organisational reform. But my my life has also been about police reform on the inside, cultural police reform, particularly around race. Now, mm. when we talk about the question of racial and, you know, the, the, um, ethnic relations, we, we constantly explore this through political and social discourse. And there's a number of factors. But the one factor that you can see throughout history is that political discourse on race is always founded on immigration, on waves of immigration. So when we look back, you know, we look back to the 1840s and 50s um, in Whitechapel, you had lots and lots of Irish and Jewish immigration and you had lots of inequality to those communities. Then in 1917, we had a lot of people in um, uh, of Somali descent in Cardiff and in Liverpool. That was the back end of the slave um, trade. And um, we had our first riots. And the first riots weren't um, black riots. There were white riots against black people that uh, people seemingly thinking they had taken our jobs during the First World War. So there's a discourse that's been running. And even if you look at the current discourse of history, well, we've got high immigration and you've got all the rhetoric coming out of the Home Secretary and you've got all the rhetoric from different newspapers saying different things. Mm. So so to me, it's really important that we go beyond history and we start rewriting some History that really makes, you know, this country great. I know it sounds really naff, but we're only going to get great together. Um, yeah. It's, it, and, and thank you for that. I, it, it was interesting when, when we were kind of talking about doing this podcast and we had this conversation, didn't we? I mean, my perspective, my, my area of um, expertise is around women in leadership. Um, and I, I work uh, in and around kind of EDI and have for years. And there's this, it does seem to be cyclical, doesn't it? That in that something happens, be that nationally, internationally, whatever it might be. Um, and the world kind of wakes up and people get interested in kind of doing workshops or having those conversations. And then, like you said, you know, there's some financial pressure Things are getting politically a little bit more difficult, whether that be, you know, politically with a, a, a small p. And then we kind of go backwards a bit. What do, what do you think? What do you think is the state of uh, the nation, really, when it comes to conversations around inclusivity? Well, it's really about two elements for me. One is power mm-hmm. and hierarchy. Yep. So, you yep. know, um, there was a piece of research done by Malik in 1996 talking about the accepted knowledge in the 19th century was humankind was divided into different people. Basically, white people on the top, black people at the bottom. So there's Mm. a social, political and scientific thought that placed whites or those in power on top of the hierarchy. Well, let's move forward a little bit and let's test that hypothesis out. Um, There is a lot of powerful people of colour in the current government but they yeah. are still still speaking in a radical power or hierarchical way. And what I'm saying there is now in, a, in the modern age, it's not possible to categorise people into different criteria. What I'm right. saying is it's, it should be on what 
people say and what mm-hmm. their values are. And for, for far too long, we've just oversimplified this as a black and white issue. Of course, yeah. there are biases. And of course, um, me as a brown skinned person, I always get stopped <laughs> at the at the channel. I always right. uh, my risk of being stopped is higher than anybody else. Now, being yeah. from a police background, um, there is some merit in stop and search and there's some dismerit. And yeah. um, it's interesting when you are in power, how you can affect things. I had a visit from a chief constable when I was chief inspector at Crawley and he was amazed. He said, how are your officers having the lowest um, uh, numbers of stop and search yet the highest conversion. That is, when you stop somebody, it converts to an arrest. And mine was absolute. And all I said is I sit down with the officers and we speak about the law and we speak yeah. about uh, the people um, that are most likely to be impacted. And you can change things while still being legitimate with um, whatever you want to do in society, whether it's to uh, look at immigration. But we've got to look at that in in a way that really understands the power we're exerting and the privilege. I really love that phrase, the power and the privilege. I think, again, privilege is one of those words that seems to accumulate so much baggage. And and, and when you talk about recognising your privilege, you automatically get pushback from a lot of people. But it is about, yes, the power dynamic, isn't it? And the and and the broader societal piece and where we sit with that to to know that, you know, I know that as a woman, there are certain issues that I will see. I know that as a white woman, woman, there are certain issues that I won't necessarily be affected by because that's not who I am. And I think it is just about recognising that privilege, isn't it? Absolutely. Absolutely. And, you know, privilege can cut across all cultures and, yeah. and all groups. So within um, we can I'm not going to name names, but you, we know who's in government. They may look like me, but they have had a privilege that is different to mine. And Mm. one of the things that um, really happens in organisations, what we've had is we haven't had enough yet of representation of women and people of colour into board Mm. levels and and power as as much as we should have. And we still need to um, work that through. However, where there is success, one of the problems that I do see um, is that you can be of colour, you can be a woman. The culture around you sometimes actually possesses so much inertia that you start yeah. saying the same thing. I, I, I'm reminded of I went back to the College of Policing. We were doing the Police Uplift Programme two years ago. and We mm-hmm. went to the College of Policing, and I'm not going to name names, but somebody asked me, what difference do you see? And I said, well, 10 years ago, People in power and privilege would be white, middle-aged men. Mm-hmm. Now, that has been superseded by white, middle-aged women. Now, <laughs> the troubling right. thing, the troubling yeah. thing for me, Laura, was that they were talking like the white, middle-aged men. There was okay. no cultural change. There was no fresh thinking. And they certainly wasn't the attachment of empathy you know, inclusive leadership. And, mm. and I'm so sad to, to hear that because the culture is is really sucks you in and you start behaving as if you you start behaving 
uh, as you are told to behave and yeah. also what the leadership structure is. And one of the good questions I always ask um, <laughs> my delegates is if you could assign a gender to your leadership, what would it be? And I give them a choice. Is it masculine or is it female? And the debate that starts off there is is just fantastic uh, mm. for privilege. So privilege, as you say, yeah. it, um, is not simple. Um, it, it cuts across all the axes of the Equality Act. Um, but unless we acknowledge it mm. and do something about it, all we'll do is just change the deck chairs and the conversation is exactly the same. That is, uh, yeah, that's so interesting. And, and and it's, you know, thinking about that, how we assimilate as leaders into the culture and having the courage and the support really to be able to push back because it's understandable why people do replicate what's going on in an organization for a whole host of reasons and there's the kind of assumption that women might come in and be kind of all compassionate and empathetic and we're not all like that uh-huh. uh, which and and it is so so that brings me i guess to the question around organizations is that you know this is inequality at a, at a global level there's so much structural and systemic stuff to discuss to talk about but for organizations that want to think about making a bit of a difference here where would you start if I came to you and said, right, I'm an organisation, I want some help. Where would you start? I would, I would first of all, get you to really focus on your approach. The mm-hmm. approach is so, so important. So let's take a look at uh, equality, diversity, inclusion training. Since mm-hmm. 1999, millions upon millions of pounds have been spent. Um, I would argue that there has been very little change in a lot of organisations. So let, let's just pick the criminal justice system that I know well or, or the government. Um, yeah. When we look at those changes, the return of investment has been very minute in terms of challenges. So now we're having challenges about mis- misogynistic behaviour yeah. in government, yeah. in um, public life, in films, in radio, in the BBC. So why is that happening? Well, what, what's happened since 1999 is organisations have gone through um, a sheep dip approach to right. training. And that sheep dip mm-hmm. approach is um, the, you know, the 1970s um, Judith Katz type approach where it's, you know, um, blood on the floor. I want you to feel my pain as a, a black person. And what that caused really for me was fear and division. And right. certainly with Deep Insight. We ditch the fear. We have courageous conversations, but mm-hmm. we ditch the fear and the division because this is about getting differences. If we don't embrace those differences, we can't go anywhere. anywhere. So the approach yeah. to the organisation needs to be absolutely fundamental. This is not a tick box approach. This is not, yeah. you know, it won't get you X. And I'm always open with organisations. Then we actually change it change the narrative. So the Labour Party in the 1980s endorsed a pluralistic existence. That means, um, you know, communities living side by side. Mm -hmm. And they kept using this word tolerance, which is a terrible word. I tolerate Mm -hmm. you, which seems really non-inclusive. So the approach needs to be deeper. And again, we've got three areas that I, I... really um, centre on with organisations. One is the culture, the way we yeah. do things around here. Privilege. Yeah. 
and power. So power mm-hmm. doesn't need to be invested in people at the top. You'll have key influencers in the canteen at a really junior level that mm-hmm. can really scupper everything you do. So you yeah. need to have those three circles in proportion. And the last thing I would do with an organisation is ditch the moral compass around equality, diversity and inclusion. Why I say that is start with the business outcomes. The business outcomes are why you are doing this programme. Why is it we need inclusion? If you can marry that up to business outcomes, you Mm. you are absolutely on the button. So when we were doing the Police Uplift programme with the Home Office, I was challenging all the outreach recruitment teams uh, in the 43 forces to say, why, why are we doing this? Why are you sat here trying to recruit other people? Why are you trying to recruit women, black people, etc.? Why? And, you know, it was painful that nobody had worked through the business outcomes. And right. if, there's one, if there's one book I could recommend uh, the listeners mm. to look at, and that is, you know, Matthew Said, Rebel Ideas. So okay. when when you read that chapter one, it gives you that imperative, the business imperative. So going back to the police recruitment um, teams, I gave them a scenario of why. And the why is that police, the police do not have the capability of surveilling black and Asian gangs in the UK. We still don't have that capability. So right. unless you've got that, that's the business imperative. So if if you were to translate that into a business um, model where somebody says we haven't got X people in a specialist department, you know, to pull levers, you go yeah. and recruit them. Yeah. But, but we, we don't link to the business outcomes. Again, with housing associations, I'm talking about when you are welcoming families, say, from a Muslim background, what do you give them? And sometimes with some associations, you know, we're looking at, bottles of wine then people go all right we're not going to give them a bottle of wine we'll give them a pretend bottle of wine that is non-alcoholic that's not offensive but even the representation of the bottle can be so Mm -hmm. you've got to look at those business outcomes what is it that you are going to do with the interaction of your communities as a business that you need to hone in on and it's the business outcomes that really slot in the why for people who then start thinking differently and then we've got a chance of people behaving differently. Wow. Um, I was writing down, as you were talking, I was writing down lots of different things I was going <laughs> to ask you. Um, I love that you talked about the people in the cafe that could undermine things. Back in the day, that would have been in the smoking room, wouldn't it? Um, Absolutely. And, and times have moved on that much that these things don't exist anymore. Um I think it's really interesting looking at the business case. I think, uh, you know, that's something I ask that we do. Um, uh, what is the business imperative for the learning and development, for the training? There is a big part of me that gets very disappointed that we have to look at a business case when it comes to just treating people nicely and equally. Um, but I, I totally hear what you're saying. If we're going to change behaviours, we need to, you know, we need to be able to look at the impact more broadly. I just really wish that after how many years? What was it? The 1970s? Yeah. We wouldn't have to keep having these conversations, but there we are. That is the world we're in. Um, And I think, so one of the points that you made there that I just wanted to expand on a little bit 
And I see this a lot when I'm talking to people around um, EDI, around, um, you know, people management processes is that people really have a fear of these conversations. I think um, some of that is worry about, you know, the legal ramifications. Some of it is, you know, that media driven message that we just can't say anything anymore. Um which I, which is nonsense because of course we can say things and actually if there's stuff that you really sh- can't say now you probably shouldn't have been saying it 20 30 40 years ago either but but how it's about opening up these conversations this is a cultural piece isn't it how do we get rid of that fear so that people can talk to people as individuals and we're having those inclusive conversations well i th- i think that's down to people like you and me um mm. building that safe environment so yeah. with every every program that we run uh we lead it on uh, be brave and have courageous conversations yeah. so our banner headline from deep insight is brave organizations have courageous conversations but the but the ask then the question is how how do we do that and yeah. i find that what we do need to do is in a very sensitive way unpick those areas of why why yeah. do we need to do that? Look at the values. Yeah. Look at the habits that we've created. So, you know, the way we do things around here, especially with executive um, teams, and then start really delving down using evidence rather than opinion. Now, mm-hmm. when I've when I've seen other um, training programs or or people that deliver this, it's usually delivered if if we if we're looking at a bell curve middle of the road facilitators. The area that I'm talking about around EDI requires three core elements. One is some experience of delivering change in EDI yeah. and yeah. knowing where the bumps are, knowing where the resistance factor is going to be. The next is that you need people with some kind of lived experience. So yeah. um, you as a woman, me as somebody from a uh, black or Asian background, um, can bring in those life stories and start bringing yeah. those storytellings in. And then the, the 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 last bit is really our our experience. We've you know I, I look very young, but I'm quite old. <laughs> I've been round the block a, a long time. So we look at when I'm looking at this, we do not hesitate or we do not come back from having a brave conversation. about banter is it friendly ignorant malicious we do a lot of group work and we also really address the elephant in the room you you were talking about that earlier laura but um thomas in 1999 said political correctness made us change the words but not the conversation Mm. so it's those conversations we need to grab hold of the words executives are so slick uh, police chief constables so slick now everybody's slick but having done so much media training but yeah but one thing that will always trump is having an evidence-based conversation rather than an opinion-based conversation so yeah. again we go back to the approach and we go back to how we set the scene and how the facilitator then moves this and I have to say, Laura, that a lot of the time I deliver programs, there is an aspiration from the internal training team to take over. And they just think sitting at the back, taking notes, they'll be able to do it. 
Right. I have to say that, you know, sometimes you then need to build your capacity of your training yeah. element and they have to really work hard to be able to manage this. And a lot of the time, you know, there is fear both ways, fear of the cohort or the delegates. And yeah. then I see an awful lot of fear by facilitators going, please don't ask me that horrible question. Oh, yeah, yeah. I, yeah, I have had that fear. <laughs> That's when we, we car park it and go back to the internal team. Um, and it's, and it, it is really interesting. I think very often, um, when I'm running sessions like this, people, delegates turn up and they think they're going to get told off. Yeah. Um, and, and that's, and, and I don't know what's been communicated to them up front, but that's not my job. You know, I'm not here to tell people off. I'm here to educate and share experiences and, and talk about this stuff. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. And, and that's where your experience, um, you know, your knowledge, and, and also the facilitation skills come, come out. Yeah, and yeah. for me, you know, uh, a lot of people that I, I, I employ for deep insight for some of our programs, you've, you, you've got to be brave as a facilitator. Mm. But uh, equally, you know, when we are talking to executives, um, even, even as consultants, we've got to be brave in telling them not, not can I extend my contract, but actually, yeah. This is really important for your organisation. And I think so. another interesting point you made there that we I did a podcast. um, Oh, gosh, must be a couple of months ago now with with my daughter and um, her friend um, who are just starting university. You know, Jen said what I think the other thing that's really important operating in this world is that, you know, the flip side to courage, which is the, the humility and the vulnerability to you know, the conversations that I have with my kids, you know, understanding evolves, language evolves. Um, so, you know, I learn from them as well. You know, I've got lots of experience to bring to it, obviously, but but I learn from them because they look at the world in a very different way, you know, because they've, they've been brought up online, they've had to live through COVID. The world is a much smaller place now than it was when I was growing up. So I think as people, you know, we, we can stand up as experts, but we I think it's important also to admit that we don't have all the answers. Absolutely, absolutely, and that's what makes um, you know the world so, such a lovely place and so interesting. Mm. Is that you know our thinking in 1999 is not our thinking now, yeah, and it certainly wouldn't be. And younger people have a different view of of the world, and they have a different view of diversity, e- equality, mm. and inclusion. Um, I, I see a lot more empathy. Uh, and respect coming out from uh, young people. I've got two young kids as well. And the way they speak about LGBTQ+, they even know that. (laughs) And how how they know about transgender, the way they're they're opening up to talk about, well, it's it's your choice. And and that 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 gives you hope Mm. and that gives you some light. Um, Equally, you know, there are still messages that are happening you know through adverts through um media that that contrary that and and i think you know having good fruitful discussions with young people is 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 so vital mm. and of course we're not discriminating against any other generation we're having discussions with everyone but it, it is about recognizing 
the different contexts in which you know we're having these conversations um i this is so interesting and i really fear that we could talk forever but i'm i'm going to ask you one final question and i may well ask you to come back and we'll continue this discussion at another time what uh, and I'm, I'm afraid i'm putting you on the spot here but i'm going to ask you what do you think has been for you the most valuable thing or, or or number of things that you have done in your working life what's what's the thing that has made you the most proud okay um the proudest moment has been being a founder member of the national black police association uh at mm-hmm. a time when the lawrence family was still looking for um closure and they were still looking for an open independent inquiry um right. we set up the black police association uh, with no money, no funding, and a lot of resistance from within the police service. So my legacy back to the police is the start of that that reform process, which still needs to go on. So that's my proudest moment. Wow. But the but the the other thing that has really shaped me mm. is that moving from opinion based to evidence based is so so important so um back in 2004 or 5 i'm speaking with senior cops and there is a push and pull over institutional racism does it exist doesn't it exist there's lots of research on this so there was a tug of war going on and for me personally i i took it as a challenge to start a six year um research project um, looking at institutional racism in the police and what that gave me was a solid foundation to have a debate and I would challenge anybody in government as a police chief come and have a debate with me Mm. around institutional racism but bring some evidence bring two weeks of research somewhere where you've sat down with somebody don't come to me and just have an opinion on institutional racism, because quite frankly, I'm going to beat your hands down. (laughs) But it's not about beating people. It's about explaining to them that you're having a conversation like a football match. And these things are so, so important um, Mm. to people, how they impact on them. So there's two things. What I'm proud of is the legacy of the National Black Police Association still looking at reform. Um, that's really dear to me still now, and, and I and, and I support a lot of uh, work around that. And then the other is actually getting to a position where I, I have a very solid foundation on topics that I'm speaking about. I do think, hopefully, if you're up for it, we're going to be speaking again at some point in the near future. Thank you. Thank you. My pleasure.